Okay, well, be sure to uh, connect with Dan and Janet. Uh, They just had a few minutes this morning to share, but they have a whole lot of stories about uh, the whole month. So they were in Africa for a whole month and uh, have a lot of stories, and uh, God did a lot of things. They got to see a lot of things, and uh, just I envy that uh, unique opportunity that they had to see God at work in another part of the world. You know, God is at work in the world, and uh, some of the biggest things that he's doing are in places so different than the United States. Uh, He's working in the southern hemisphere in big ways, and uh, in... uh, third world or developing nations, and uh, God is at work around the world, including this valley, and so it's exciting to be able to be a part of that. Well, today, I think you're going to like today because we're going to be talking about sex and politics in one sermon. So I know that you'll be glad that you came today. Right on. Open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 3. So the world that we live in today, it's easy to think that unless you live by everybody else's rules, then somehow you're going to get left behind. If you don't get out there and look out for yourself, nobody's going to look out for you. If, if, for example, you don't get out there on social media, if you don't get out on social media and make yourself look like somebody, then Everybody else is going to make themselves look like somebody, and you're not going to look like anybody. If, if everybody else is cutting corners at work, and you're not cutting corners, then they're going to get ahead, and you're going to be left behind. If everyone else at school is uh, cutting corners at school, and, and, and doing things that they know are not really in the best interests of other people, and they're getting ahead by doing that, you're going to think, I have to do that, or I'm going to be left behind. If uh, everybody at work laughs at the boss's dirty jokes, and you don't, well, then they're going to get ahead, and you're going to be left behind. If other employers are underpaying the people who work for them, and you want to pay the people who work for you a living wage, but you're afraid to do that because if you do that, they're going to get ahead and you're going to be left behind. If everyone uses their money, the people around you use their money to make their lives nicer, and you want to use your money to make a difference in the world, but you're afraid that if you do that, they're going to get ahead and you're going to be left behind. Now, uh, you can even take this idea into very personal realms because uh, this is how it works in a marriage. I mean, you, I know you, you are sometimes tempted, uh, even in marriage, that, that if you treat your spouse right, if I treat my spouse right when they're treating me mean, well, then they're going to get the upper hand and I'm going to get left behind. If they're relating to me in a way that's not appropriate, if I don't choose the same way of relating to them, then they're going to get what they want and I'm not going to get what I want. If uh, in a family relationship or interpersonal relationships, if so-and-so is not going to forgive me, why should I forgive them? Because if they don't forgive me, then, then, then they're going to be able to continue acting the way that they want to act, and I'm going to try to be the appropriate one, and they're going to get what they want in the relationship, I'm going to get left behind. What about politics? If you don't use the same tone and tactics as the other side, whatever side of of the equation you may be on, everybody's afraid that the other side will get ahead and you'll be left behind. 
Well, we're in a study of the book of Ruth called Faithful. And it's a, a, a story of some lives that take place in a time just like ours. Ruth was written in a time in Israel's history called the Era of the Judges. It was a time in Israel's history when the historian of that day says everybody did what was right in their own eyes. So everybody was making their own rules. Everybody was pursuing and looking out for their own interests. But in that world where everybody was doing their own thing, there was a pocket of people who practiced a different way of living. There was a pocket of people who practiced something that the Bible calls chesed. Chesed is a Hebrew word that we really don't have any equivalent for. We use a lot of English words to get at chesed, this word chesed. We use the word love, uh, qualities like love, faithfulness, grace, mercy, kindness. It's all of these qualities wrapped up in one Hebrew word, chesed. And usually when you read the word chesed in the Old Testament, you're reading about God and His love for us. The love of the Lord endures forever. The love, that word love, chesed. The chesed of the Lord endures forever. Most of the time in the Old Testament, this word is used to describe God's mercy and kindness and grace for His people. But often, it's also used to describe people's actions towards each other. And when a person acts with chesed towards another person, it means that they're acting for the benefit of another without respect to the advantage that it might bring to the person who expresses it. It's selfless love. Selfless love for another person. And today we're going to see a small pocket of people in a world where everybody looks out for themselves, we're going to see a small pocket of people actually look out for other people instead of themselves. Actually practice chesed, this God quality that God exhibits towards us. We're going to see people exhibit it towards each other. Now the challenge today, we're going to do Ruth 3 and part of Ruth 4. And the challenge today is that this episode is super complex there is, uh, there is a ton of, uh, there are a ton of ch- interpretive challenges in just understanding what happens in Ruth chapter 3 because it's filled with ancient Near Eastern practices, even ancient Near Eastern legal practices. It's filled with Old Testament law, uh, and, and it's also filled with PG-13 plus a little bit, sexual, sexually charged situations. And so uh, a lot of communication is kind of indirect, all right, like we often talk about sex. And so you've got all these different factors in this section of Scripture. So what we're going to do is I'd like to read through this text all the way, chapter 3 and part of chapter 4, and as we go, I'd like to explain what we're, what we're reading so that by the time we're done, we'll pretty much fully understand the story. And then I want us to draw some timeless truths out of that story and then apply them to our lives and even to our current state of politics. But first, I have to explain one thing before we get into it, one thing that you need to understand before you read this story, and it's something that's called the Law of the Kinsman Redeemer. There was a, a law that was set forth in the Old Testament called the Law of the Kinsman Redeemer, or the Rescuing Relative is what I like to call it. 
Because that's what it is. It's a law of a rescuing relative. It's a law that's meant to take care of a person or family in need. So that when a family is in need, they're poor, they're going to lose their land, for example. They can't keep up their land because of their poverty. And this is the land that had been given to them back when Israel entered the promised land and God had the land divided by tribe and then in each tribe divided by family and every family got their piece of property when, but, but if a family was in danger of losing that piece of property that had been allotted to them by God, there was a law called the law of the kinsman redeemer, where a kinsman, a relative, a brother or an uncle or a cousin, could come in and redeem the land. He could buy the land that you couldn't afford to own anymore, but he wouldn't buy it for himself. He'd buy it, and then he'd give it back to you, and that was his way of keeping. That was God's provision, really, in the Old Testament for keeping land in families, even in hard times. So that's the law of the kinsman redeemer, the rescuing relative. He was a kinsman who brought back or redeemed, bought back or redeemed property for your family. Uh, another way this law of the rescuing relative worked was uh, when it came to inheritance. If you were a widow, you'd married someone and your husband, you'd married a husband and he died before producing a son to be an heir and inherit that property. That was another way you could lose your property, not by just not having enough money to, to, to upkeep it, but by not having an heir to inherit it and pass it on. And if that happened, Uh, a kinsman redeemer, a rescuing relative could step in and he would become the uh, surrogate father. And he would father a child with a widow, produce an heir, and that heir would not belong to him. It wouldn't be his heir. It would be the heir of the deceased husband. And in that way, he'd carry on the name and the inheritance of the deceased husband. It was, again, just another way that a rescuing relative could provide for the continuation of, of property rights and inheritance so that families could maintain what they'd been given when Israel was first divided up. Very important in that day that the, that the property continued to remain in the family. So that's something you have to understand before you begin reading Ruth 3 and 4 or you won't understand anything that's going on. So now with that kind of background, let's take our Bibles and here's what you're going to need. You're just going to need to keep this open for the next 10 or uh, minutes or so. I don't know how long it's going to take us to work our way through this story, but we're going to begin in Ruth chapter 3. Then, uh, remember, the main characters are Naomi, the mother-in-law, Ruth, the daughter, uh, who's a foreigner in this country, and then a man named Boaz, a man of upstanding uh, reputation in the city of Bethlehem, who is also a relative of Naomi's. So, on one, one day, Naomi... Her mother-in-law said to her, so we're talking about Ruth, said to Ruth, my daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Now, if you remember that Ruth and uh, Ruth has just finished working harvest. That's what happened in chapter 2. She came home with about 50 pounds of barley for them to live on. And that was, that's several weeks later because now it's not just barley harvest time. It's time to start threshing the barley. And so it's probably uh, six weeks or so removed. And uh, maybe they've run out of food again. And Naomi says to Ruth, listen, I think it's time for you to get a better life. You're young. You've got your whole future ahead of you. It's time for you to move on. I am I'm an anchor around you, okay? So why don't you go 
and, and be where you will be well provided for. Do you see that in the end of verse 3? Naomi's concern is that Ruth is well provided for. She's not looking out for herself. She's looking out for Ruth. And she says, I said, I'm sorry, that was the end of verse 1, where you'll be well provided for. Is not Boaz, whose, with whose servant, our servant girls have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. What they would do to winnow barley, that's separating wheat from chaff, and they'd go to these hills. They'd go up onto a hilltop, and on top of that hill where the wind was always blowing, they'd uh, throw the, the wheat or the, the grain up in the air, and the wind would blow the chaff away, and the, the grain would fall down in a pile. So he's going to be up on one of these places, one of these hills, spending the night. It's not Boaz who, with whose ser- with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours. Tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So wash and perfume yourself. Go bathe, get cleaned up. Put on your best clothes. Up to this point, uh, Ruth has probably been wearing clothes of mourning. And she's like, time to change clothes, okay? You need to get off those, you need to get out of those mourning clothes and put on something, put on something nice. Uh, then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, note the place where he is lying, and then go uncover his feet and lie down. Now, when it says feet several times, uncover his feet, that's, that's, uh, that is not exactly what's said. It's actually the whole leg. It's not just feet. It's the leg. So uncover his legs, all right? So when he lies down, here are the instructions in verse 4. Go uncover his legs and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Whoa. I'll do whatever you say, Ruth answers. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. Wow. So she smells good. She's perfumed. She's clean. She's wearing Fresh new clothes. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his legs, uncovered his legs, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, don't you know? And he turned and discovered a woman lying at his legs. Now, this is, the, this is the top of the hill at night where men would go and work and spend the night. What else do you think sometimes happened on those hills at night where men would go to work and spend the night? It was a common place for prostitutes to come and visit. So he wakes up. He's cold. He's shivering. He wakes up, my, you know, and he's just... And then he sees a woman... Lying down in his legs. And he says, verse 9, Who are you? He's like still half asleep. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. Who are you? I'm Ruth. Remember me? Working in the fields. You were so gracious to me. Hey, Boaz, how about sharing a little bit of that blanket with me. Okay? That's what's going on here. Now, I want us to understand that what Ruth does here is amazing. 
Uh, she, Ru, uh, Naomi says, go lay down beside him and he'll tell you what to do next. She does not wait for him to tell her what to do next. She lays down beside him. He wakes up and she says, hey, Boaz, how about sharing a little bit of that blanket with me? Now, here's a couple things that are going on. All right. One thing is going on is the actual words she uses are, how about spreading some of your wings over here on me? Wings, referring to kind of the edges of the garment. If you notice, and if you remember from last week, Boaz said, hey, you know what? Someday God's, I, I pray that God will spread his wings over you and protect you. Remember that? And you'll find refuge under his wings. Well, here she says, hey, boys, remember that prayer you prayed? God, share some of his wings. And, and how about you put some of those wings over here on me? Now, here's, what, here's what's happening. She's not offering Boaz sex. And she's not asking to cuddle with him. If you were an Israelite from this day, you would understand she just asked Boaz to marry you asked for someone to... Usually it was the guy asking the girl. That was the unusual part here. But when someone says, hey, I'd like to share a little bit of that blanket with you. That's a marriage proposal. And that is what Ruth is doing here. She is asking Boaz to marry her. And she's asking Boaz to marry her because he's a rescuing relative. Notice how it's all bound up together. Spread the corner of your garment over me. Since you are a kinsman redeemer. And he understands exactly what she's asking. He says in in verse 10, The Lord bless you, my daughter. Now you can tell Boaz has not been romantic for a long time. If that's his response to how about you share a little bit of that blanket with, The Lord bless you, my daughter. Uh, The kindness, this kindness... You know what that word is? Kindness? What word would you guess it might be? Chesed? This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier towards your mother-in-law. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do all, I will do for you all that you ask. He understands she just proposed marriage. He gets that. I'm going to do everything you ask. But there's one problem. All my fellow townsmen know that you are, this is not the problem. All my fellow townsmen know you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to redeem good, let him redeem. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. He says, listen, you're a great lady and you are acting in kindness. And you know what? I'm going to do everything I can to fulfill your request. But you know something? I know something you don't know. There's someone in line before me to marry you. If you really want this kinsman redeemer thing to work out, it's got to go to him first. And so uh, I'll get up in the morning and I'll take care of that. In the meanwhile, you just lay here. And they spent the night lying together in what one uh, guy calls the crucible of temptation. I mean, do you think they got a whole lot of sleep that night? They're just lying there beside each other, you know. Uh, And... uh, So she lay at his legs, verse 14, until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, yeah, before the sun comes up, 
She's up and out of there. And he says, yeah, good idea. Don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said he can't stop being generous. Bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. And when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. And then he went back to town. And when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? So the whole night, it's early morning. Ruth comes in the house early morning. Sun's up. And Naomi's awake and says, okay, tell me about it. And she told her everything Boaz had done for her. And added, oh yeah, you know what? On the way out, he gave me these six measures of barley. Saying, don't, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Do you remember Naomi? Who, when she left, she was full, but when she came back, she was empty? Boaz says, listen, that mother-in-law who's had so much emptiness in your life, you take this back to her and make sure that she's never empty again. It's a beautiful picture of how God fills Naomi. Verse 18, then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. I know this guy, the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So, meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. The town gate is like City Hall. It's where they transacted business. There were little kind of cubicles in the, in the gate. The gate was actually a wall of, you know, maybe 10, 12, 14 feet deep, something like that. And uh, in that space, they would conduct business, the men of the city. And when the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, what an interesting coincidence that he just kind of showed up that day. Uh, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. Now, one of the most interesting parts of all of Ruth, I think, is right here in this verse. Because of how the narrator describes this man who's just called friend. Boaz says, come over here, my friend. What's interesting about this is that this man has no name. He has no name. He's actually called a phrase. He's called this Hebrew phrase, it kind of sounds funny, and that's why they used it. It's uh, the Hebrew phrase, Poloni Almoni. That's what's translated friend. Come over here, Poloni Almoni. What does that mean? It means, it's funny sounding, but it's like we, it's like when we say, come over here, so and so. You know, it's just a, a, uh, indirect, it's come over here, blah, blah, blah. Right? That's what Poloni Almoni is. And most translations translate it friend because they don't know how to express this kind of so-and-so. But, but he really means, come over here, Mr. So-and-so, whatever your name is, I don't know. That's what it is. The King James Version says, six translated 400 years ago, says, uh, Ho, such a one. That's how they describe what Boaz says. Ho, yo, can't remember your name, but... You're the guy I'm looking for. One translation actually calls him John Doe. Because here we're talking about a legal translation that's going to go down. And what do you say when you don't know the name of someone in a legal uh, transaction? You just call him John Doe. So, hey, John Doe, come over here and sit down with me. Here's what's interesting. That his name is not important. In a chapter... Chapter 4, where you will find 19 proper names, you will not find the name of this man anywhere. 
whatever, Mr. So-and-so. We'll see why in a minute. Boaz says, hey, uh, yo, uh, can't, you know, you, know, you come, come over here and sit down with me. And he went over and sat down. And Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. And then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of those seated here, the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, buy this land back, then do so. But if you will not, then tell me so that I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I'm next in line. You want to buy this property? I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day, on the day that you buy this land from Naomi and Ruth the Moabitess. I didn't mention her. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. On the day you buy the land from Naomi and Ruth the Moabitess, you will acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Oh yeah, by the way, if you buy this land, you get Ruth and Naomi, two manless widows, with it. And at this the kinsman redeemer said, I cannot redeem it, he said, ruthlessly. It's not really in there. But it's funny, right? He said, ruthlessly, I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. I've got people to take care of. I've got my own. You redeem it, Boaz. I cannot do it. He doesn't want to take care of the two widows and the son that will not carry on his name. He doesn't want to. It may endanger his own properties. So he says, no, 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 I didn't realize it came with all those obligations. I can't do it. Verse 7. Now, in earlier times, see, even people reading Ruth in the day it was written didn't understand everything that took place because it, it was written after it happened. In earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. You get a guy's sandal, you say, hey, we agreed on this. I got his sandal to prove it. That's, what, that's what's happening. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. And then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, okay, you, everybody here saw this. Your witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech and Kilion and Malon. I've also acquired Ruth, the Moabitess. Uh, Malon's widow as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or the town records. Today you are witnesses. And the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. All the twelve tribes came from these two gals, Rachel and Leah. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Wow. (laughs) There's a whole lot happening there. But we understand the story now. We don't understand every little nook and cranny what happened, but we get the story. And and, uh, what is God trying to tell us here? 
What do we learn about God? What do we learn about his people from this story? What you have in this story are four people who face a choice. Four people, they all come to the same fork in the road, and they face a choice. Am I going to protect my interests or promote someone else's? Four people in, a, in, a, in an era where the ethic was you've got to look out for yourself or you'll get left behind, four people faced that fork in the road and said, do I want to risk getting left behind and protect my interests or do I want to promote someone else's? Now that's what happens with Naomi. Naomi uh, faced that choice. Her daughter-in-law was her only source of security, uh, the only stable thing in her life. But her daughter-in-law was a young woman with her whole life ahead of her. And, and Naomi was just a drag on her. She deserved to do more with her life than, than take care of an old woman. And Naomi wanted to see something better happen for her. So she acts with selfless love. And verse 1 says that she did all this uh, uh, to, so, that, uh, so that Ruth would be well provided for. Ruth, she's looking out for Ruth, this, this old woman with no safety net. So she acts with selfless love with chesed and enacts a plan to help Ruth get on with her life, even if it means leaving Naomi behind. She risked her well-being for someone else's good. She faced that fork in the road, and instead of protecting her own interests, she acts with chesed and promotes someone else's. Now you see uh, Ruth do the same thing. Ruth faced a choice. She went to Boaz, and she didn't just propose marriage. Yes, she needed to be married. Yes, marriage would have made her life better. But she didn't just propose marriage. She said she proposed marriage as a rescuing redeemer, which means that her mother-in-law is part of the deal. Now, think how many marriages today would not happen if the mother-in-law came with a deal. But that's what Ruth insists on. My mom is part of this. She's moving in with us, and you're going to take care of both of us. And when you have a child, he's not going to be yours. He's going to be Malon's, my ex-husband, my uh, dead husband. And if we have another child, maybe then, you know. And see, what she wants Boaz to do is ask you, act as a rescuing relative. It's not just simple marriage. She wants him to enter a complicated legal obligation. Not for her. She could have married anyone she wanted. Boaz says, listen, you could have married someone rich, young, poor. You could have married someone young and rich. Marry for money. You could marry someone young and poor. Marry for love. But instead, she marries for Naomi. She encumbers herself. And instead of protecting her own interests, she promotes someone else's. She acts with chesed. Boaz. Guys, what would you do? Guys, what would you do if you were alone at night on a hillside with a young woman in a sexually charged situation? where she smells good and she's cleaned herself uh, up for you and put on beautiful clothes and, and she's made herself vulnerable to you. So you're the one with power. You're the man. You're the employer. You're the citizen. She's a woman. She's a servant. She's an immigrant with no rights and no recourse. I mean, hey, whatever she gets, she's asking for it, right? Right? Then in the morning, I'll conveniently remember, oh, I forgot last night, I actually do have another relative who comes between me and you, and I just forgot to mention that. I'm sorry, I guess we can't get married after all. But last night was really great. That's not what he does. 
He does not take advantage of her in any way. He continues to look out for her good. Neither does he shy away from the idea of using his resources to help two women in need. He risks his well-being for someone else's good. Which brings us to the fourth character, Mr. So-and-so. You know why we don't know his name, right? He's anonymous because the narrator refuses to memorialize him. He refuses to uh, uh, acknowledge him. In a chapter where the narrator records 19 different proper names, I counted them all last night. In a, in a chapter where the, the narrator names 19 different people by name, he cannot come up with the name of this guy. He, he doesn't want to memorialize the name of a guy who's not even big enough to look out for two widows. So here's another irony in the book. The one guy who didn't want to risk endangering his name. The one guy who didn't want to lose his good name is the one guy nobody remembers. It's a clear lesson to us. It takes a while to get at it, but once you see it, it's like, oh, yeah. The people that God looks out for here are the people who look out for others. God looks out for us as we look out for others. We have three great examples of people who when everyone was out for themselves, they looked out for others. And we see in this episode and throughout the book how God looks after them in the process. Now remember, Everybody else is looking out for themselves. They face the fear of being left behind in this culture, but they decide at that fork in the road, I'm not going to protect my interests. I'm going to look out for someone else's and let God protect my interests. And they don't get behind. They end up getting ahead. As we look out for others, God looks out for us. That's a timeless truth in this passage. Now you say, that's a little moralistic, isn't it? Just to say, hey, you be nice to people and God will be nice. And it's not moralistic. It's a New Testament principle. Philippians 2 tells us this. Uh, it says, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ. Jesus goes on to say, he could have remained equal with God, but he chose to take on human form." God looks out for us when we look out for others. It's not moralistic. It's God's that. It's how God is and how He wants His people to be. On the flip side, take the opposite of that. One way to ensure your insignificance is to make sure that you look out for yourself. It's the extent of our love that determines the extent of our legacy. If you love yourself, that's where your impact ends. If you love other people, that's where your impact begins. If you love yourself, then you've just taken charge of caring for yourself. If you love other people, then you invite God to be the one who takes care of you. And you invite God to be part of your story instead of you trying to write it yourself. I want you to think about this. God looks out for us when we look out for others. What would your marriage look like? If you quit keeping score and you quit playing by your spouse's rules and you just started playing by God's rules all the time, I might get left behind. No, let God write that story. 
What if you uh, started putting this into uh, play uh, at school and you said, you know what, I'm going to quit looking out for myself. I'm going to start looking out for other people and I'm going to let God look out for me. What would that be like? What what would it be like at work if you said, I'm going to quit looking out for myself. I'm going to start looking out for other people. I'm going to let God take care of my job. What would that be like? That's what God calls us to do. And if you're concerned that in the process you might be left behind, remember it's the extent of your love that determines the extent of your legacy. If you love yourself, that's where your impact's going to end. But if you love other people, that's where it will begin. I want you to think about how you might put that to work. I want you to lock that in for a minute. How might you put that to work? The reason I want to lock you to lock it in is because I don't want what I'm going to say next to erase everything we've learned up to this point. So remember where you're, remember where you're at and what God's saying to you. Because now I want to apply this, just a couple minutes, to a very timely uh, situation today, the state of politics in the United States. This election has been uh, the most divisive election in modern history. And I'm pretty sure that there was more diversity in how the people of Trinity voted on this particular subject than any more diversity within our congregation than any other election at least since 1980 and perhaps since we were established as a church in in 1954 now trinity uh, the the evangelical vote uh, whatever that means nowadays i'm not sure that i even know or or identify with that title anymore But the evangelical vote may have been pretty monolithic. I don't think it was as monolithic at Trinity. And what that means is we have people of different opinions in our church, certainly our valley, which means that I will probably offend everyone this morning by the time we're done. Uh, But what I wish was that there was a place in the Bible that spoke to issues like this. Don't you? I wish there was a book of the Bible that took place in a time of uncertainty, that, where the quality of leader varied from pretty good to really bad. And, and, and where people, uh, were, when people were focused on doing their own thing, everyone's following their own interests so that we could see how God's people are supposed to act. Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, if there was a book of the Bible and maybe it showed how God's people lived in a, according to a different ethic in that era and how God didn't leave them behind but actually used that kind of ethic to promote uh, his purposes in the world. And it would really be awesome if, if it showed how these people, uh, this pocket of people living in a crazy world would, were acting by a different ethic and some of those people were people of power. Some of those people were people of influence who used their power and influence not to take advantage of other people, but to take care of other people. And it would really be awesome if some of the people that they took care of were immigrants, because that would really speak to some of the issues in U.S. politics today. Uh, and, and then if we could see how God would be in the details of all these different things and, and carrying out his long-term plan for history, it'd really be great if there was a place in the Bible that did that, wouldn't it? I just don't know where I would find any place like that. Do you? I'm so glad that we're in a study of the book of Ruth right now. And here's what I want to say. I have a few takeaways, political takeaways. God's in charge of history. He's in the details of history. You see that throughout the Old Testament especially. God is in charge of history. As such, if God's in charge of history, then God's looking for His people to trust Him. Right? Trust Him. 
You got your president. You didn't get your president. Trust God. If you're happy that you got Trump, my opinion, I hope you're trusting God and not Trump. If you didn't get Trump, and you, you, you didn't want him, you didn't want him, then I hope that's not because you think another person has all the answers. Unless that person is Jesus, and then it would be okay. We need to trust God in all of this and, and, and pass on. Some of this I'm not just saying to you. I'm saying to you so that you can pass it on to other people. I'm not saying everyone here is all worked up necessarily, but, but we've got we to pass this on. So trust God. Secondly, God is looking for his people to follow the principle of chesed. Loyal, faithful, sacrificial love. Not protecting our own interests, but promoting the interests of others, especially people who are in need. Especially people who are vulnerable. And here's the problem. Here's the problem. I believe that includes people like unborn children and immigrants. Find that political party for me. That's why we need to remember we're not beholden to one party or another because neither party gets it right. Neither party gets it right. That just reminds us of my third point. And that is this, that, that we, are not politi- we, are not, we are citizens of heaven before we are citizens of any country, including the United States, which I love. God is looking for people who put the gospel first. As a Jesus follower, you're a citizen of heaven first. Far more important than your political views or my political views. And I like politics, and I like to laugh at it, make fun, and follow it, and all that. But you know what? Far above that, uh, above our political preferences, is maintaining a place and guarding our voice so that we can speak the gospel. Not acting, Facebooking, tweeting, Instagramming, anything that compromises our ability to speak for Jesus. So here's my encouragement to you, especially those of us who like politics. Let's not treat this in a way that we lose our voice for the gospel because that's the most important voice we have. So some takeaways that really are grounded in the book of Ruth Trust God. Act with chesed. Care for those who can't care for themselves. And then guard your voice for the gospel because the gospel is more important than any political system will ever be. And if one is ever in competition with the other, you've got to make sure the gospel wins out in your voice. I hope that that puts to rest more than it raises. And here's what I want to ask you and me to do. Just to pray. And to pray for us to be people of chesed in a culture where that's not how everybody is. And God will honor us and further his purposes as we do that. Father, we want to thank you this morning that you are the God of history. And that, uh, that we can trust you. And we, we all have uh, different backgrounds and experiences. And we see different things. And so we come up with different solutions even among us. But we know that, that uh, you are the one who really knows uh, what, what is true. You are the one who, you know, and only Jesus is, is the ruler that we can really trust. No matter uh, which way, which, which political background we may come from. And so we're reminded of that. And we pray for our country and ask for you to continue to be at work. And we ask that you will help us be people of chesed. People of gracious, sacrificial selfless love for other people. 
And that, we'll, that, that will be how we treat people we disagree with. It will be how we treat people that are vulnerable. It will be how we treat people who need to hear the gospel more than they need to hear anything else. So we, we ask for this, and we pray that you'll help us to put this principle into practice in our marriages, at school, on the job, in our uh, social media, in every way that we interact with people. Help us to be inspired by Ruth and Boaz and Naomi and be warned by Mr. So-and-so that, that the only way to live lives that really matter is to act in love towards people and let you take care of us. That's what we pray. And we pray that as we do that, that uh, you would use us for your good purposes. And we pray it through Jesus. Amen.